can read these stories and purchase our ebooks at blackandeducation.com. I never knew of but one white man who bore the name of Hemings. He was an Englishman and my great-grandfather. He was captain of an English trading vessel, which sailed between England and Williamsburg, Virginia, then quite a port. My great-grandmother was a full-blooded African and possibly a native of that country. She was the property of John Wells, a Welchman. Captain Hemings happened to be in the port of Williamsburg at the time my grandmother was born. And acknowledging her fatherhood, he tried to purchase her of Mr. Wells, who would not part with the child, though he was offered an extraordinarily large price for her. She was named Elizabeth Hemings. Being thwarted in the purchase and determined to own his own flesh and blood, he resolved to take the child by force or stealth. But the knowledge of this intention coming to Mr. John Wells' ears, though through leaky fellow servants of the mother, she and the child were taken to the great house under the master's immediate care. I have been informed that it was not the extra value of that child over the other slave children that induced Mr. Wells to refuse to sell her, for slave masters then, as in later days, had no compunctions of conscience which restrained them from parting mother and child of however a tender age. But he was restrained by the fact that just about that time amalgamation began, and the child was so great a curiosity that its owner desired to raise it himself that he might see its outcome. Captain Hemming soon afterwards sailed from Williamsburg never to return. Such is the story that's come down to me. Elizabeth Hemings grew to womanhood in the family of John Wells, whose wife dying, she, Elizabeth, was taken by the widower Wells as his concubine, by whom she had six children. Three sons and three daughters, Robert, James, Peter, Critty, Sally, and Thena. These children went by the name of Hemings. Williamsburg was the capital of Virginia, and of course it was an aristocratic place, where the bloods of the colony and now state most did congregate. Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, was educated at William & Mary College, which had its seat at Williamsburg. He afterwards studied law with George Wythe and practiced law at the bar of the General Court of the Colony. He afterwards was elected a member of the provincial legislature at Albemarle County. Thomas Jefferson was a visitor at the great house of John Wells, who had children about his own age. He formed the acquaintance of his daughter, I believe Martha was her name, though I'm not positively sure, and an intimacy sprang up between them, which ripened into love, and they were married. The Athors went to live at his country seat at Monticello, and in course of time had born to them a daughter whom they named Martha. About the time she was born, my mother, the second daughter of John Wells and Elizabeth Hemings, was born. On the death of John Wells, my grandmother, his concubine, and her children by him fell to Martha, Thomas Jefferson's wife, and consequently became the property of Thomas Jefferson, who in the course of time became famous, and he was appointed minister to France during our revolutionary troubles, or soon after independence was gained. About the time of the appointment, and before he was ready to leave the country, his wife died. And as soon after her interment as he could attend to and arrange his domestic affairs in accordance with the changed circumstances of his family in consequence of this misfortune, I think not more than three weeks thereafter, he left for France, taking his eldest daughter with him. He had had sons born to him, but they died in early infancy, so he then had but two children, Martha and Maria. The latter was left at home, 
but was afterwards ordered to follow him to France. She was three years or so younger than Martha. My mother accompanied her as her body servant. When Mr. Jefferson went to France, Martha was a young woman grown. My mother was about her age, and Maria was just budding into womanhood. Their stay, my mother and Maria's, was about 18 months. But during that time, my mother became Mr. Jefferson's concubine, and when he was called home, she was impregnated by him. He desired to bring my mother back to Virginia with him, but she demurred. She was just beginning to understand the French language well, and in France, she was free. While if she returned to Virginia, she would be re-enslaved. So she refused to return with him. To induce her to do so, he promised her extraordinary privileges and made a solemn pledge that her children should be free at the age of 21 years. In consequence of his promises, on which she implicitly relied, she returned with him to Virginia. Soon after their arrival, she gave birth to a child, of whom Thomas Jefferson was the father. It lived but a short time. She gave birth to four others, and Jefferson was the father of them all. Their names were Beverly, Harriet, Madison, myself, and Easton. Three sons and one daughter. We all became free agreeably to the treaty entered into by our parents before we were born. We all married and have raised families. Beverly left Monticello and went to Washington as a white man. He married a white woman in Maryland, and their only child, a daughter, was not known by the white folks to have any colored blood coursing through her veins. Beverly's wife's families were people in good circumstances. Harriet married a white man in good standing in Washington City, whose name I could give but will not, for prudent reasons. She raised a family of children, and so far as I know, they were never suspected of being tainted with African blood in the community where she lived or lives. I have not heard from her for 10 years, and do not know whether she is dead or alive. She thought it into her interest on going to Washington to assume the role of a white woman, and by her dress and conduct, and as such I am not aware her identity as Harriet Hemings of Monticello has never been discovered. Easton married a colored woman in Virginia and moved from there to Ohio and lived in Chillicote several years. In the fall of 1852, he removed to Wisconsin, where he died a year or two afterwards. He left three children. As to myself, I was named Madison by the wife of James Madison, who would afterwards become president of the United States. Mrs. Madison happened to be at Monticello at the time of my birth and begged the privilege of naming me, promising my mother a fine present for the honor. She consented, and Mrs. Madison dubbed me by the name I now acknowledge. But like many promises of white folks to the slaves, she never gave my mother anything. I was born at my father's seat of Monticello in Albemarle County, Virginia, near Charlottesville, on the 19th day of January, 1805. My very earliest recollections are of my grandmother, Elizabeth Hemings. That was when I was about three years old. She was sick and upon her deathbed. I was eating a piece of bread and asked her if she would have some. She replied, no, Granny don't want bread anymore. She shortly afterwards breathed her last, and I have only a faint recollection of her. Of my father, Thomas Jefferson, I know more of his domestic than his public life during his lifetime. It is only since his death that I have learned much of the latter, except that he was considered a foremost man of the land and held many important trusts, including that of president. I learned to read by inducing the white children to teach me the letters and something more. What else I know of books I have picked up here and there to now I can read and write. I was almost 21 and a half years of age when my father died on the 4th of July, 1826. About his own home, he was the quietest of men. 
He was hardly ever known to get angry, though sometimes he was irritated when matters went wrong. But even then, he hardly, hardly ever allowed himself to be made unhappy any great length of time. Unlike Washington, he had but little taste or care for agricultural pursuits. He left matters pertaining to his plantation mostly to his stewards and overseers. He's always had mechanics working for him, such as carpenters, blacksmiths, shoemakers, coopers, etc. It was his mechanics he seemed most directly to like, and in their operation he took great interest. Almost every day of his latter years he might have been seen among them. He occupied much of the time in his office engaged in correspondence and reading and writing. His general temperament was smooth and even. He was very undemonstrative. He was uniformly kind to all about him. He was not in the habit of showing partiality or fatherly affection to us, his children. We were the only children of his by a slave woman. He was affectionate toward his white grandchildren, of whom he had 14, 12 of whom lived to manhood and womanhood. His daughter Martha married Thomas Mann Randolph, by whom she had 13 children. Two died in infancy. The names of the living were Anne, Thomas Jefferson, Ellen, Cornelia, Virginia, Mary, James, Benjamin Franklin, Lewis Madison, Septima, and George Wythe. Thomas Jefferson Randolph was chairman of the Democratic National Convention in Baltimore last spring, which nominated Horace Greenlee for the presidency, and George Wythe Randolph was Jefferson Davis' Secretary of War in the late unpleasantness. Maria married John Epps and raised one son, Francis. My father generally enjoyed excellent health. I never knew him to have but one spell of sickness, and that was caused by a visit to the Warm Springs in 1818. Till within three weeks of his death, he was a hale and hearty, and at the age of 83 years, he walked erect and was stately and tread. I am now 68, and I well remember that he was a much smarter man physically, even at that age, than I am. When I was 14 years old, I was put to the carpenter trade under the charge of John Hemmings, the youngest son of my grandmother. His father's name was Nelson, who was an Englishman. She had seven children by white men and seven by colored men, 14 in all. My brothers, Sister Harriet, and myself were used alike. They were put to some mechanical trade at the age of 14. So then we were permitted to stay about the great house and only required to do such light work as going on errands. Harriet learned to spin and to weave in a little factory on the home plantation. We were free from the dread of having to be slaves all our lives long and were miserably, measurably happy. We were always permitted to be with our mother, who was well used. It was her duty all her life, which I can remember, up to the time of father's death, to take care of his chamber and wardrobe, look after us children, and do such light work as sewing, etc. Provision was made in the will of our father that we should be free when we arrived at the age of 21 years. We had all passed that period when he died, but Easton, and he was given the remainder of the time shortly thereafter. He and I rented a house and took mother to live with us till her death, which, which event occurred in 1835.